0: Welcome to The Steady Investor with Mark Vickery and Mitch Zacks. In our program today, we'll help you get started or continue to build your nest egg with some of the best practices for retirement planning. It's time to start right now. Here are your hosts, Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery.
1: Welcome again listeners of VoiceAmerica.com's business channel. You're listening to The Steady Investor sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. I'm your co-host Mark Vickery. Joined today by the other co-host of The Steady Investor, Mitch Zacks, portfolio manager and founding principal at Zacks Investment Management. Uh, good morning, Mitch. Good morning, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely. It's a little rainy here uh, in an August day here in Chicago, but uh, not too shabby. I mean, you know.
2: And we'll take rain in, in August in Chicago anytime. So it's that's kind of, very nice. It's
1: refreshing. That's right. I wanted to, first of all, say that uh, listeners of this program can call in to speak with Mitch directly or myself, and you can call this number to do it, 866-472-472 five seven nine zero we'll patch you right in live to our podcast um, now mitch let's get started as a portfolio manager i know you tend to look more longer term but here at the steady investor we'd like to take on current issues investors are paying attention okay. to uh, markets look a little stalled this morning i mean the s p 500 has not been able to reach 2200 although it's remained close for days now now how much of this is seasonal low volume here in late august as we mentioned
2: and how much is legitimate market stagnation in your view It is neither seasonal low volume nor legitimate market stagnation. It is simply par for the course. In investing in the equity markets, that's what you have. You have spurts. You have small spurts forward that come when people are not expecting it to come. And you have large downward movements uh, in response to negative news. So it's very, very common to have months go by, even a year or two go by, where absolutely nothing happens in the market. It goes up 2% in the first half of the year, it falls 4% in the next half of the year, it goes up 6% in the, the next half, et cetera. So it's, it's just standard market movement. You are seeing uh, you are seeing risk or uh, the VIX index in terms of the expected volatility of the market hitting uh, relative lows. And what's going on really is the market is truly being driven uh, on the interest rate side of the equation. So as we talked about before, as interest rates go lower, stock prices uh, should go higher. And and the key question is whether interest rates are are going to be uh, raised uh, prior to the uh, U.S. presidential election. But but generally speaking, I would say that, listen, it's not that the market is stalled out. It's just par for the course Uh, effectively, if everything materializes as the market is expecting, you'd expect maybe 50 basis points, uh, 50 to 75 basis points, so half to three-quarters of a percentage total return on average per month. And so to get that 75 basis points up per month, you have of the 22 trading days, uh, 10 uh, go down and 12 go up. So over that period, it looks like it's going up, it's going down, it's going up, it's going down. And then you get two extra days that are up, maybe one at 30 basis points, maybe another one at 45 basis points, and you hit your 75 basis point average. So again, it's not uncommon at all to have the up movements, uh, you know, offset the down movements. What is interesting is that if you think about where the stock market moved the most over the last six months, Mm -hmm. it was in the shadow of the Brexit vote. So essentially- what happened is there's some negative information. The market overreacts to the negative information. And it winds up that that information is, in fact, a slightly positive, not hugely positive, but slightly positive for U.S. equities. So right. you have this negative information. It's it's conceivable. It's definitely negative for European equities, definitely negative for British equities. But for US equities, there's a slight positive, but the market reacts as if it's a negative. So, again, the market moves when there's a re evaluation of the outstanding data. So, when the data is showing, when the data comes and a view is uh, driven by the data that is different than what the market currently holds you're gonna see the movement. If the data is coming in consistent with market conventional wisdom, with what the majority of market participants are expecting, you see exactly what we're seeing in the market, which is kind of meandering around, trending upward slightly, but the upward trend is so slight, it's, it's hard to even uh, find it, unless you take a step back and look at it over a six month period. So from my perspective, market is extremely strong uh, in 2016, the reaction to Brexit is very strong, and the issue really is uh, whether we're going to see earnings growth in aggregate, in terms of worldwide earnings growth, and what's going to happen to interest rates.
1: Okay, you're talking about in Q3 and beyond, mostly. Yes, then,
2: right? Q3 beyond. I would say over the next three to five years.
1: Okay. Oh, okay. That's a much low, right. longer term. Yeah, that's very good. Uh, we know that we're still in an earnings recession right now, with Q2 just winding up. But you know, slightly, well, expect- we're, we're earnings very
2: close. are now starting to expect to grow slightly. Uh, based on analyst expectations. And the real issue is if you think about what's really going on, these corporations, if you look at their dividend payments and you look at the stock buybacks, you're at approaching maybe 95% of the total aggregate earnings. So if I add up all the total dollars given back as dividends by the S&P 500 companies, mm-hmm. and I add up even uh, higher than the dividends are the share buybacks, where the company uses its cash to buy back shares, right. I get at a level that's about 95% of their total earnings that they generate. Wow. So, in aggregate, what's happening in the US is they're taking all the earnings that they're generating and they're giving it back to shareholders. And the issue is whether they're not reinvesting enough in the future in terms of capital, in terms of labor, and research, to, and d- development. research and development. Instead, so what's going to happen? very clearly is it's going to result in increased merger and acquisition activity Mm -hmm. as these large companies have to purchase smaller cap companies uh, that are developing new products. And uh, you're going to start to see some uh, earnings growth over time. And again, as investors, what we really care about is earnings per share growth. We don't, aggregate earnings growth is necessary in the very long run but in the short run, the next three to five years, you really want to see those earnings per share going up. And that's what we're seeing occurring in the U.S. equity market.
1: Okay, very good. Yeah, we are seeing some uh, mergers and acquisitions activity as well. Even this week, Pfizer bought Medivation for $14 right. billion, and I think they acquired some other smaller company as well. So we are seeing a bit of that as well.
2: Yeah. Right, which is generally not the best for the market. Okay. So what you want to do is you want to see fear amongst corporate managers and when corporate managers are afraid, they don't engage in uh, equity offerings, and they certainly don't engage in merger and acquisition activity. But even with a couple uptick in merger and acquisition activity, if we look at where we are right now in terms of global Mm M&A, relative to where it's been uh, historically, we're below our averages. So you don't want to see in terms of sort of sentiment analysis of the market, Increased merger and acquisition activity, everyone says, oh, that's great. Yes, it's great if you own the target company that's being acquired. Right. But it's telling you that, uh, for instance, in this case, Pfizer's management is feeling comfortable about the future. Yeah. As they people become more comfortable about the future, that gets reflected in stock prices. Stocks are not uh, disconnected from reality as much and you, it's harder for them to go up. So again, you don't want to see a massive increase in merger acquisition activity, but we're coming off very, very, uh, very very low levels. So a small uptick is very, very reasonable and desirable.
1: That and IPOs as well has been very the low.
2: IPOs, the IPOs have been uh, very, very non-existent. You'd see these private companies uh, staying private because they're, if you look at Uber or something with the $65 billion private market valuation, Uh, that lost a billion dollars, I I think it was, I read that they lost about a billion dollars in the first six months of 2016. It's going to be hard for them to go public and have a valuation of $65 billion if they're losing a billion dollars every six months. Right, what's What's really interesting about some of these companies is that you're seeing, it's very strange. They raised all this money, and what they did is they spent about $2 billion giving Chinese working uh people uh money by giving them discounts on their fees that they received as uber drivers so they took all this money from u.s investors they raised it they went to china they gave everyone in china a incentive to become a driver by mm. giving them you know paying them extra uh, taking lower wages uh, taking a lower cut of the wage and at the end of the day the chinese regulatory environment would not allow them to really grow and they sold the business. So again, there is some issue in terms of international competition with some of these countries essentially almost acting as mercantilism. It's like they're sitting there trying to plan their entire uh, country's economy in competition with the U.S., and the U.S. is acting as if the private company is, is acting alone, and there is something to be said over long periods of time uh, but generally speaking, we're not seeing a massive increase in IPO activity, which is very positive for the U.S. equity markets. Again, because that's not showing a level of complacency. that People sell, p- private companies go public when the valuation they get in the public market is higher than what they think it's worth. People sell things when what the price they're getting is higher than to them what the value is of, of what they own. Right. And uh, the fact that you're not seeing that is not is is because uh, the public markets would not take a look at Uber and see it losing a billion dollars uh, per per every six months and say this is worth uh, sixty two billion dollars. They would they would they would put a lower valuation on it sure. until they start to see some sort of profit uh, growth uh, start to materialize. So again, the fact that we see very very low IPO activity is because. Although every their 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 historical P multiples are higher than where they've been historically, they're not high enough to induce owners of private tech companies to take the firm public. They think it's worth more than what the public market is going to pay for it, which tells you the public market is not in quote bubble territory.
1: Very good, Um, listeners to the Voice America's Business Channel, Steady Investor, the Steady Investor, which is this show. Okay, you can call in and talk to Mitch Zacks or myself by uh, dialing eight six six. Uh, we will patch you live into our podcast right now, and we'll have a discussion with you about um, well, about anything you want to talk to, as long as it's market-related. Also, if you'd like to contact a representative at Zach's Investment Management, uh, you can call 800 249 2934 and you can discuss managing your retirement assets uh, and you can also get more information uh, by emailing us at ZimInfo, Z-I-M for Zacks Investment Management, info at Zacks.com, Z-A-C-K-S dot com. Also ZimWealth.com is the website to check out. So I just wanted to get that out of the way before we move down. Um, We were talking about interest rates, we're talking about whether or not they're gonna raise until before or after the general election. Common wisdom has been they're not gonna touch it maybe until 2017. However, Fed presidents are meeting this week in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and we have heard, I, let me see some of the uh, the Fed Reserve presidents um, right here, uh, Dudley, Lockhart, mm-hmm. Fisher, uh, Esther George from Kansas mm-hmm. City said, I think it's time to move. It seems they're ready, and we're going to hear from Fed Chair Janet Yellen tomorrow. So is there a chance? Is there more of a chance? Should we pay, be, be paying more attention to a
2: September uh, a 25 basis point uh, interest rate hike. I would be very, very surprised to see a basis uh, a 25 basis point rate hike in September. Although the U.S. economy is doing well uh, globally, there is such downward uh, pressure on interest rates. If the U.S. raises rates, what happens is uh, U.S. dollars uh, become more in demand. U.S. deposits become more in demand. The U.S. dollar appreciates Relative to the euro, relative to the yen, and it becomes harder for U.S. multinationals uh, to make sales overseas. And uh, it, it, it'd be because when you be, the goods become more expensive. Right. So if a good is uh, essentially being produced for five dollars, and the uh, dollar appreciates relative to the euro and appreciates ten percent, now that good uh, essentially costs uh, effectively five dollars and fifty cents effectively to the mm. Europeans. So because you're seeing this downward pressure on interest rates globally, it's going to be very hard for the Federal Reserve to raise rates unless they sacrifice multinational earnings growth at the altar of a higher dollar. And so I I expect them to keep rates as low as they possibly can for as long as they possibly can to let the economy run hotter than they normally would to reduce, uh, in, in uh, to reduce, uh, unemployment. Well, so again, mm-hmm. if you, the lower you keep interest rates, the, lo- the more the economy heats up, the more likely you're going to have inflation, the more likely you're going to have uh, lower unemployment. So if you keep rates lower for longer, it generally helps the, l- the labor in the country, but it hurts the uh, banking infrastructure because sure. you start to have inflation and things of like that. You start to have inflation. So, uh, if they raise rates, it's, it helps the banks uh, because now they're going to be able to be charging money on deposits and uh, earning right. more money on their deposits. Mm-hmm. So what I expect is that Yellen, in her leanings, is leaning more towards wanting to keep unemployment low than keeping inflation low. And also, you don't see any whiff of inflation globally. So the concept that you're going to have inflation in the U.S., when you're going to have deflationary scares in Europe, it's likely not to materialize. And as a result, my anticipation is they're going to jawbone the market to say that rate rate increases are coming, but they're going to delay a rate increase until December. Okay, it doesn't necessarily have to do with the general election, or, or, or maybe I it mean does. It, 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 it. I would like to believe that the Federal Reserve is uh, enough isolated politically. Uh, that they're making this decision uh, based on the lack of inflationary expectations uh, globally. Okay. So when you don't, when you're in a low inflationary environment and you're recovering from a recession, there is not a huge push to raise rates. And the the reason to raise rates is so that the Federal Reserve has some ammunition if there's another shock to the system or a shock to the economy that occurs. Right.
1: Are we still seeing negative uh, yields from uh,
2: foreign bonds? You're seeing negative nominal yields. It's not, people have to understand that negative real yields. So, okay, so a nominal yield is just the yield you're getting on your money. So you invest the money, nominally, how much money do I have when I get the bond back? And right now in some European countries, you have less money back after you bought it. But you're you're also seeing... uh, what you saw historically is negative real yields. So historically, what happened is inflation might be running at three percent, and the bond might be generating a two percent yield. So you invest a hundred dollars a year from now you have hundred and two dollars but that hundred and two dollars doesn't buy uh, this uh, doesn't buy the same amount of money as if you had just uh, it, it, because of inflation right. essentially. Mm-hmm. so the the concept that you have a negative yield that you have a yield that's lower, uh, then the inflation rate is not unheard of. It's, it's happened about 30% of the time okay. in the fixed income market. The issue is that inflation is so low that the negative uh, real interest rate results in the negative nominal interest rates. So it's not so crazy to have a interest rate that's lower than in the inflation rate. What's going on is because the inflation rate is so low, the headline nominal rate is then negative. Right. But in that environment, And you're sitting there and you can loan the money to a european sovereign nation and get less money back uh, you know when the bond matures going and putting the money into us uh, high yielding dividend stocks is a no-brainer the reason is because if you go into the just the s p 500 you're given a two percent yield on your investment just in terms of the dividend that's being paid you have the companies engaging in all these share buybacks to prop up the earnings per share and to grow earnings per share First, giving the money to uh, to, to, the, to a government in Europe and getting less money back. So until that reverses itself, you're going to see equities propped up from the relative valuations uh, compared to bond prices.
1: And you don't expect to see interest rate hikes in this country until we start seeing a reversal of the negative yields in, the, the, uh, overseas.
2: We're no longer an island onto ourselves. So we're effectively... Joined with the rest of the world, right? So the the Federal Reserve has to take that into account And if you have deflationary pressure overseas and we start raising our interest rates It's going to choke off uh, earnings growth from Multinationals because it's going to cause the dollar to rise and right. the, and that higher dollar makes all of our goods more expensive and it reduces our exports makes it makes the imports cheaper uh, but that's not what we want to do. What we want to do as a country is have more exports and have uh, potentially fewer imports and grow GDP growth. So, so what, I, what I don't expect to happen is I, I expect them, if there's going to be a surprise to the market, the surprise is going to be that rates are going to remain lower for longer rather than rates are going to be raised before people are expecting.
1: Okay, very interesting.
2: We're going to take a short break. Uh, You're listening to Mitch
1: Zacks on The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. Uh, Like I said, we're going to take a short commercial break and be right back. Uh, If you'd like to call into this program, call 866-472-5790, and we'll patch you right into the podcast. Uh, See you in a few minutes. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
0: The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zacks Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zacks, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zacks focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934 or to learn more, go to zimwealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934, or go to zimwealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor.
1: Today's dramatic business and workforce changes make it urgent to think differently about HR. Instead of being just the system of record or engagement, HR needs to become an agile platform for everything in your organization to come together to transform the work experience. How can you develop your key relationships across the business as you transform HR into a powerful force for business breakthroughs? Tune in Thursdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel for Changing the Game with HR, presented by SAP.
0: You are listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zaxx.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Uh, welcome again, listeners of Voice America's Business Channel. This is The Steady Investor with Mark Vickery and Mitch Zacks. Um uh, Mitch, we actually did have uh, somebody uh, write in, and they have okay. a question. Um, you ready? Yeah, sure. Fire uh, this is, away. This is from Bobby M. from Tucson, Arizona, and he asks – Mitch, as an investor, I'm less concerned about achieving high long-term returns and growth rates on my portfolio. I'd rather have a portfolio that attempts to hedge downside and Mm -hmm. reduce volatility. And if I can do that and achieve modest growth, I'd be a happy investor. Does Zacks have any options available for that objective, a strategy that's not just pure stocks and
2: bonds? Yes. We do have a uh, strategy that's a market-neutral strategy. We go long stocks uh, that we think are going to appreciate And we short stocks uh, that we anticipate uh, will be falling in value and the returns that that strategy will generate are based on the differential between the uh, what the stocks on the long side do relative to the stocks on the short side so the return is uncorrelated for the most part with the market so if i think about this and just imagine there were you know there's probably about 125 stocks long and uh, probably about uh, 80 or 90 stocks short in the portfolio. But imagine we were doing it with just one stock. Okay. And we went long Ford and we shorted GM. Uh, what's going to happen, the performance of that strategy, in this uh, hypothetical example of going long Ford and shorting GM, is going to be whether Ford stock outperforms GM stock. So right. if the auto sales slow in the U.S., both Ford and GM will be hit by having lower auto sales, and the question is which one handles lower auto sales better in terms of the stock price. So both in terms of the fundamentals, which one can generate the least amount of earnings uh, pullback in a slowdown of uh, you know light sales, light vehicle sales, and which one might be more attractively valued. Uh, if, if the auto sales go up, uh, essentially again you're going to make money if Ford outperforms GM. And right. so both Ford and GM are, are exposed to similar economic factors. If the right. market goes down 20%, uh, Ford and GM are both going to go down. But if Ford falls 18% and GM falls 20%, uh, you're going to make 2% in the portfolio. If right. the market goes up mm-hmm. 10% and Ford goes up 10% and GM goes up 8%, you're going to make 2% of the portfolio. So the goal is to try and generate a return regardless of where the market is going. But you have to use this strategy as a complement uh, to having long-term equity exposure. And the reason is over long periods of time, uh, what we anticipate to happen is that the equity markets will generate a higher annualized rate of return than almost any other competing strategy out there, both in terms of an alternative strategy, which I discussed, or even a uh, fixed income strategy. Right. And what you have to be able to do is mix your equity exposure with fixed income exposure and with alternative exposure in such a way that you can handle the volatility in the equity markets. Right. Again, the way to make money as an investor is to put your money into uh, long term equities and try and keep it there for as long a period of time. Now in the beginning of that uh, investment, you're going to have large fluctuations in your wealth uh that are going to occur but if you fast forward 10 uh, 15 years your wealth has now doubled uh, hopefully uh if it if the market appreciates at about a seven percent annualized rate of return and you still have the same fluctuations but the fluctuations are not with your initial investment they're with the increased investment that's occurred uh, because you're in the market. So, again, if you think about it, there's this upward t- trend in the U.S. equity market, there's high degrees of standard deviation. Mm-hmm. And so the key is to just stay invested over long periods of time so you can handle it. Something like the market neutral strategy has very, very low standard deviation, but the expected rate of return is lower than the market. So you're, you're very unlikely to wake up and see the market neutral strategy fall dramatically in a single day. Uh, But you're not going to appreciate it the same rate of return uh, as you would in the equity markets. But in this environment where you have, you know, potentially uh, you have a 35 year bull market on fixed income securities uh, likely coming to an end and you have the equity market, uh, you know, doing well, but uh, by no means cheap. Uh, allocating some to market neutral to our market-neutral strategy uh, might make some sense.
1: That's very good. Well, uh, thank you, Bobby M., for that question. And that's basically you're saying hedge against volatility. That's, that's it, how you do right. it.
2: Right. What I'm saying is there are ways to do this. Right. Like, as I explained, a market-neutral strategy would go long equities and short equities, the same dollar amount in the same sort of sectors, right. will generate a return that uh, eliminates or significantly cuts back on the chance of a major pullback tomorrow. If the market crashes or has a major correction, Ford and GM in this example are both going to have a major correction and your expected return is not going to be any different. But over the long period of time, you're, you can make a better rate of return by investing in equities over a long period of time. So again, if you become too concerned with volatility, you can always find something that has a low volatile uh, return, It's what, what you're going to sacrifice is that expected return over long periods of time.
1: Right. Very good. If you're listening to this podcast right now, you can call in 866-472-5790. You can get your question right on the air with Mitch Zacks himself, um, and we'd love to have you. Uh, so please uh, consider that. Also, if you'd like to contact a representative at Zacks Investment Management uh, to discuss managing your retirement assets, uh, you can call 800 249 we also have an email, which is ziminfo, Z-I-M, info at zacks.com, Z-A-C-K-S. And then also the website is zimwealth.com. Uh, again, like the, the the pitch, I just like to make those uh, when I can. Um, Zach, uh, Mitch, I wanted to talk about the Zacks Investment Management Dividend Strategy a little okay. bit. Um, why should you, I, I believe you say that in general you should own dividend-paying stocks. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit. Sure. Why should in, you own in stocks? In
2: this macro environment, uh, stocks that are paying sustainable dividends, where the dividend is growing over time, are going to continue to be attractive as long as interest rates remain relatively low. Okay. If, if interest rates go to six, seven percent, the fact that you have a stock that is paying a yield of three percent as opposed to two percent, uh, people are not going to the the market's not going to care that much about. Okay. But we're not at that place yet. We're still at a place where uh, short-term rates, uh, the 10-year Treasury is below 2%, 1.6, 1.5%, and so the difference in yield between 2 to 2.7, between 2.5 to 3.2, is strong enough that it's going to continue to attract asset flows. Let's go back to your question about uh, the negative uh, interest rate environment, the negative bond yields right. in European countries. Mm-hmm. You're a, uh, you, you're a German multinational, and you're trying to determine what to do with the profits of your corporation. Okay. And if you invested in uh, XYZ sovereign debt, you actually get your money back, but you get less money back a year from now, than uh, five years from now, let's say, than you put in. What do you, That doesn't seem to make a tremendous amount of sense. doesn't seem very attractive. You're running a company, you're generating a profit, you're taking the money, you're putting it into a bond. And the bond is coming back with less money than you gave than you lent out. It right. doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. Now, if you go into the U.S. and you buy U.S. multinationals that have high dividend yield, you get a yield that's positive, and you get a company with a valuation uh, that is somewhat attractive. So again, until you get to a point where the treasury yield is above the dividend yield of sort of the large cap value, the Russell 1000 large cap value index, mm-hmm. you're going to continue to see capital uh, flow towards dividend yielding stocks. Okay. Dividend yield is essentially a way of looking at value over time. And if you historically look over time, what you find are two very, very interesting phenomena. One, dividend yielding stocks statistically outperform non-dividend yielding stocks. And two, the outperformance of the dividend yielding stocks relative to the non-dividend yielding stocks occurs through protection from uh, to the downside.
1: Okay. So what
2: normally happens, if I go back and I look at all the companies that are publicly traded- And I look at, let's say, the 1,000 largest by market capitalization. So I'm only looking at the large cap companies. And I have 1,000 companies. And each year, I group them into 10 fractiles based on the dividend yield. What I find is the fractal with the higher dividend yields outperform the fractal with the lower dividend yields, But they outperform in periods of time when the market goes down. So in periods of time when the market is going up, higher dividend yielding stocks at best keep in line with the market. But when the market reverses and goes down the higher dividend-yielding stocks outperform uh, the, the market. So if you ran this study prior to the uh, 2000 uh, market correction due to technology stocks, you would say, well, there's no reason to buy dividend-paying stocks at all. The world has changed. Uh, the company should be reinvesting their earnings instead of uh, returning it as dividends to uh, stock payers. Uh There's double taxation on the dividends because the company pays taxes and the individual or the uh, the entity that, that receives the dividends pays taxes. Mm-hmm. After 2000, it completely reversed. And if you look what happened in 2000, dividend paying stocks substantially outperformed non dividend paying stocks. And the reason is that if the corporate management is left alone to just sort of have this income, they go off and they expand in many different directions. A good example of that is what Amazon is doing. They they, they initially sold books and then they moved into this area, that area, this area. They've been doing it extremely well, and they've caught on to this sort of uh, cloud computing that they have some sort of uh, monopolistic ability to uh, offer cloud uh, computing services and things of that sort. But most companies, when they try and do this, like Brunswick or something of that sort, they run into problems. Okay. They make they make boats and then they try and go and uh, make something else. And uh, there's no economy of scale that effectively goes. And out. the synergies it's, aren't really The synergies thing. aren't there. They start to acquire companies. They pay too much for the companies they acquire. Mm. Uh, they have a defendable niche in some certain area. They try and move out of the area and the niche isn't expandable. So the the, the company, so, so two things happen. Dividend-paying stocks outperform non-dividend-paying stocks. And it's not because of just receiving the money back. It has to do what the... Uh, what the umbrella of having to pay a dividend does to corporate management. Right. It for- focuses them on cash flow and it focuses them on maintaining the cash flow through all different economic environments, which is beneficial uh, for the investor. Right. So if the company is very concerned about meeting its dividend, what they're going to do is they're not going to go off willy nilly in 10 different uh, areas and try and expand here and over there where, they're, where they don't have a competitive advantage
1: effectively. Right, because the last thing a company that has a high dividend yield wants to do is cut that
2: Right. Dividend. Once they cut the dividend yield, it's a signal to the market that there's an issue. So, the, again, it's like a signaling property to investors that come, uh, you know, no matter what's going on in the economic environment, they're going to make their best effort not to cut the dividend. Right. Now, if you compare that to a company that's not paying a dividend, uh, that's a growth company, uh, they will, they're, they're, Value to the market is that they're going to grow earnings so much faster than everyone else. They can demand this very, very high P multiple. Okay. Well, over time, you can't continue to do that. Over time, competitors enter the marketplace. The, the growth rate declines. So over time, those companies that are paying the dividends outperform those companies that are not paying the dividends. It occurs in down market environments, but there's also some effect on the management of the company over time. And at at the investment management side of the business here, we do run a dividend-based strategy that is performing extremely well uh, year to date and historically. And what we do is we focus on companies that have higher than average dividend yield uh, higher than average uh, cash flow yield. So they're generating their earnings uh, through cash mm-hmm. and lower than average short interest relative to shares outstanding. So uh, hedge funds are not uh, borrowing stock to bet that this company is going to uh, fall in value. And the combination of that identifies companies where the dividend yield is going to be maintained over long periods of time. Okay. And then, and, 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 you know, we outperform in this uh, since inception and the real, uh you know what, what really goes on, if you look at it, is that the uh, strategy has very, very good downside capture, which means that when the market goes down, we tend, we have tended not to lose as much as the market, and when the market goes up, we've tended to keep pace with the market. Uh, last year, we were actually able to outperform the market in the strategy, even though we had a focus on dividend yielding stocks, because interest rates went a little bit lower than what people were expecting.
1: Right. And uh, essentially, if it's a dividend yield you're getting from investing in a stock, that's real capital that you get back into your portfolio.
2: Right. So the question is, is, is there a benefit for the company to pay a dividend as opposed to engaging a share of repurchase? So the question is, what an what a, what a, uh, accountant would say is, listen, uh, company A, you're generating all this profit. Just engage in a share repurchase return the money to uh the investor Mm -hmm. and don't uh you know you may still have a a double payment but that's an easier thing to do the difference is the share repurchase doesn't commit the company to making that share repurchase every single year it could be a one time item a one-time thing so again uh the dividend payment focuses the entire management on their knitting and focuses them on what they can do to increase cash flow for investors and over long periods of time, there are exceptions to this, such as Amazon, but over long periods of time, that generates more shareholder value for investors.
1: And would you say that also speaks to a more disciplined uh, corporate structure? The company is going to be more soundly run.
2: The, the company has to be more soundly run because they have to they have to generate a cash flow. So right. again, what happened in, in 2000 is you had companies focused on growth, engaging in activity that wasn't even... Uh, good economic activity. It was, you know, they were selling a dollar worth of goods for 95 cents and then saying, look how strong their revenues are growing. And uh, what the dividend does is it doesn't allow companies to even begin to do that. So everything has to be tighter managed and it has to be, uh, it has to be, the the corporate strategy has to be focused on generating cash flows uh, for investors. So any project that is engaged in has to be focused on Will this eventually generate cash flow for an investor? And that's part of the reason why dividend paying stocks, not just in the current market environment where they're in vogue uh, because of the low interest rate environment, but over long periods of time, 60, 80 years, have outperformed non-dividend paying stocks.
1: Very good. You're listening to Mitch Sachs on the Steady Investor, sponsored by Zach's Investment Management. If you'd like to contact a representative at Zach's Investment Management, call 800 249 2934, and you can discuss managing your retirement assets, uh, or you can get more information by going, uh, sending us an email at ziminfo at zax.com, or check out our website, zimwealth.com. Uh, we're going to take a break in just a couple minutes, Mitch. Um, is there anything else uh, about uh, dividend-paying stocks or the particular strategy that Zax Investment Management has about uh, uh, the dividend strategy uh, that we can kind of finish up now uh, just
2: session. very quickly looking at those sectors that are paying high dividends we are seeing sort of overvaluation right now in the utility sector and okay. we're actually underweighting utilities in our dividend strategy relative to our Russell 1000 value benchmark
1: even though they are dividend, even paying though they're stocks.
2: dividend paying stocks and they have very very high dividend yields they have higher dividend yields in the consumer staple stocks and higher dividend yields in the financial companies again because the other factors in our alpha model Short interest in these companies is beginning to tick up, and the cash flow yield is is relatively weak. So uh, you're looking at a situation where the most bond-like equities are continuing to be bid up, and they're the elements of the equity market that are going to get hit the hardest when interest rates start to rise, which eventually they will. So we're very cognizant of this in the dividend strategy, and we want to make sure we're not overweighting. Uh, sectors like the utility sector, uh, which have higher dividend yield than even our strategy, but we don't see as good investments at this, uh, as a sector as tremendous investments at this point in time.
1: Okay, very good. You're listening to The Steady Investor on VoiceAmerica.com's business channel um, with Mitch Zacks, the portfolio manager and founding principal at Zacks Investment Management. We're going to be right back uh, and take a short break, and then we'll have uh, some more discussion. Um, stay tuned. Thank you.
0: The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zacks Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zacks, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zacks focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to zimwealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934. Or go to zimwealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. Voice America Business Network The bottom line in business. we're listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now back to the show.
1: Welcome back, listeners, to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. This is Mark Vickery, joined by Mitch Zacks, the Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zacks Investment Management. Uh, Mitch, we were talking about a number of things with um, uh, with the portfolios that we have at, at Zacks Investment Management. But there was also um, a report that was issued not long ago, I don't think, uh, called 10 Investing Pitfalls to Avoid. And I was hoping maybe we could discuss some of these. Sure. And have the people uh, that are listening to this podcast and take Kind of take stock here. No point well, in time. They,
2: they, they, they might not be as funny as David Letterman's top 10 list, but <laughs> I, I, think there'll be a, I, I think there should maybe be some insight in there, hopefully. Perhaps they'll be even more important to pay attention okay. to, though.
1: The first one that we have here is making investment choices based on headlines instead of research. Now, I know we talk about headlines on the show. It's fun to do. It's 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 good to kind of keep abreast of what's going on. But why is that one of the investing pitfalls?
2: To There's avoid? a very old Wall Street adage which is you buy the rumor, you sell the news. So essentially what that says is that you try and figure out what is happening before it's published. And then when it is published in the, it, you know, as a major thing, uh, the reaction is the opposite of what you anticipate. Right. And you see this with almost all large macro events. They buy the rumor and they sell the news so that the, the if you're reacting to the news, you're doing the opposite of what you what, what, you should what the markets doing. Are, or what the so th- th- are doing. right right the investor who's living in the professional investor is living in the market is buying the rumor selling the news the news is published the individual investor then comes in and reacts to the news well they're taking the risk by but, buying the rumor but us, right? you are taking the risk by buying the rumor but they have to work out whether the rumor makes sense and this is just how people react uh, to large uh, you know decisions that occur in the marketplace and uh, no place do we see this more evident than in uh in 08, there was massive uh, rumors circulating about what's going to happen with this uh, bailout, with that bailout. And what would happen is there would be rumors, they would buy the rumor, and when the news was actually announced, it would be the opposite of what someone was anticipating because the market had already discounted before right. the bailout of AIG occurs. There's thousands of people, you know, there's not thousands, but there's many people being uh, talking about it, knowing what's going on, uh, reacting to it. And so you really do not want to be reacting to news stories. There's an old uh, famous uh, trader who refused to allow the people working at his trading firm uh, to read any article, any uh, newspaper besides the, uh, the National Enquirer, because the answer was that anything published in the Wall Street Journal is already reflected in stock prices
1: oh very so that by
2: the time you see it in the journal it's reflected in stock price and by reacting to a wall street journal news story uh you're 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 reacting the wrong way so you're better off ignoring the news than reacting to the news very interesting with the exception of a few things in terms of price responses uh to earning surprises uh reacting to the news makes uh, a lot of sense and does work over time in terms of responding to estimate revisions uh reacting to the news also makes sense uh, but for major news items, major market-moving news items, major corporate actions that are announced, you're better off almost selling the news most of the time than reacting to the news. I see. I see. Let's go to number two. Okay. Uh, not understanding your
1: tolerance for risk. This is one of the 10 investing pitfalls to avoid.
2: It's much more important than whether you you could buy the news all day long, uh, but if you get shaken out of the market, you're never going to make a return. Okay, That's what so, that so means. That it, it's essentially saying that you understand your risk enough that your equity allocation is such that you do not get shaken out when equities sell off. Okay. Number one most important thing for an investor to do. It, 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 yes, you could buy the stocks that react to the news, that don't react to the news. You could buy the, the stocks that are mispriced, uh, that have low valuations. You could buy stocks that are growth stocks. You buy enough of them in enough sectors and you don't get shaken out. Your entry price isn't going to make that much of a difference because the, the uh, growth of that stock over time uh, is going to dwarf whether you got it at 5% higher or 5% less. Uh, that's an extra year potentially of return you lose if you if you buy it 5% more than where you could have gotten it before. But where you really lose money is you get shaken out of the equity markets. The okay. people coming in uh, to 08 that were 90% equity and 10% fixed income and stayed there did okay. People who are 50% equity and 50% fixed income who came into 08 and got, uh, stayed there were fine. People who are 90% equity, 10% fixed income, 08 occurs, they reverse it, and they go to 20% equity, 80% uh, fixed income, uh, they never recovered the amount of money they lost. Mm. So if you, if you have to make sure your equity allocation is such that you can stay invested in the market regardless of the fluctuations that you see in the market. Working with an advisor is a very important way of achieving that. If you look at people uh, who are millionaires in the uh, U.S., a lot of them work with advisors, and the reason is because not, yes, the advisor can find better strategies, and yes, they can uh, try and help them, but really what it is is the advisor helps the investor stay steady over long periods of time.
1: And by asking the right questions, having somebody understand what their tolerance for risk is.
2: By asking the right questions, by trying to explain that when things are going poorly, it's not the end of the world, and trees don't grow to the sky, and they don't collapse either, and you just have to stay invested over long periods of time. All right, good. Let's
1: go on. Uh, we're doing the ten investing pitfalls okay. to avoid. Number three: ignoring the impact of inflation on your portfolio.
2: Yeah, more people have lost more money by just remaining in cash over long periods of time. So, you if you remain in cash and inflation is two to three uh, percent, that cash is going to be worth half the amount after about two decades. Okay. So the cash, the cash's buying power decreases over time. So someone in retirement says sits there and says, "Well, I have uh, you know five million dollars for retirement. I'm going to just keep it in cash and spend it down." What they're going to find is that their cost of living continues to increase each and every year. And if they're not growing at least with inflation, the value of that uh, retire those retirement assets is going to be decreasing over time.
1: Because the thought would be, you have. Hundred dollars, you're going to keep a hundred dollars. Right, but a hundred
2: dollars buys less and less. There's more people who have lost more money through this than anything else. That it, yes, the equity market will fluctuate. It will go up ten percent. It will fall twenty percent. Uh, but over long periods of time, it generates uh, generally a fairly good rate of return. Uh, if you just stay in cash, you, you tend to lose what you can to inflation over time. Very interesting. Let's move on. Uh, number four, determining how expensive a stock
1: is by only looking at its price.
2: People do this, eh? I, I, the, the, that is, that's just wrong. You have to look at the price uh, relative to some sort of uh, per share value. The best way to do it is to look at price relative to earnings per share. Right. The price is a, is a share of the company as that uh, share, what is your fractional ownership of the earnings the company generates? If the company reduces the number of shares outstanding, your uh, that share then gets a greater portion of the earnings. Mm-hmm. And so even if they're engaging in share buybacks by reducing the shares outstanding, your, your stock is becoming uh, less cheap. Uh, you can find stocks uh, such as Berkshire Hathaway that haven't split over many years, and they're very, very high-priced stocks. Right. Uh, and they're not necessarily super expensive, from a P multiple basis. And right. You can find stocks that are a dollar per share stock and uh, the P multiple, they're, they're losing massive amounts of money or they have very, very low earnings or the price to book ratios of these companies are very, very high. So you have to look at the price relative to a per share a metric. It could be sales per share. It could be uh, earnings per share. It could be book value per share to determine uh, true valuation.
1: Price to sales, a number yes. of different things. That's yes. right.
2: Okay, moving on. Number five, investing heavily in shares of employer's stock. You need diversification. Uh, you're already exposed to the employer's stock by virtue of your wage uh, if you're working at GE. Uh, you're exposed to GE's uh, business by virtue of your wage. You don't want to be overinvested in GE stock. And
1: you're subject to their,
2: in, their the, fluctuations. Whatever happens to GE, right. it's going to affect your labor uh, activity at the company. So you want to make sure that your ownership of shares is uh, diversified. Again, the key to investing is to make sure that the assets that are generating income are uncorrelated with each other. You don't want to have all the assets... Uh, generating income totally correlated with each other. You certainly don't want to have it in the st- in the stock market. You don't want to have 100% of your assets in your employer's stock.
1: No, it's just good to be diversified. It's good to be diversified over time. Absolutely. All right, so number six then, trying to time the
2: market. That you can't time the market. It's uh, hard to do. I've spent many years researching uh, anomalies to try and determine. Uh, anomalies come up all the time. They tend not to persist over time. And the ability of even things like the CAPE ratio and things of that sort to predict which way the market's going is very, very weak. Your best bet with the market is to look at the arithmetic average The market has generated over the last 60 years and uh, use that as the expected rate of return that you're going to generate. So you don't want to time the market. If you think stocks are expensive or you believe X, Y, Z is going to happen to derail economic growth or cause interest rates to dramatically rise, you could reduce your equity exposure and you could change your equity to debt mix. uh, But you never want to get into the market and out of the market based on what's going on. Think of it this way. Look back in the 1970s or the 1980s. Think about all the things that happened. Think about timing all those things. And you uh, fast forward to 2015, and the correct decision at every point in time was just to ignore it and just to continue to hold the stock market. The same thing's happening now. They'll, I'm sure there'll be corrections that occur in the future. I'm sure they maybe they, they could be seen. Most likely they couldn't. But even if you could predict it, they all are washed out through time of the growth of the U.S. economy over time.
1: All right, very good. Um, let's see. Um, well, so failing to diversify is number seven. That's We've kind of touched kind of on that. that. So let's go on. Uh, believing that only ultra-high net worth individuals can benefit from alternative investments. Alternative in- investments meaning what exactly?
2: The alternative investments being uh, things that uh, generate returns that are uh, different than the market. So you, you talk about private equity funds, uh, venture capital funds, hedge funds. I'm going to disagree with that that number right there, and I'm going to say that investors are generally better off having allocations to equity and debt over time. And the reason is alternative investments are zero-sum games. If someone is engaging in a strange credit derivative hedge fund, someone is trading those credit derivatives and losing money for that person to gain money. And if you pick the person who has the informational advantage or better than all the players, you can make a higher rate of return. But on average, you're going to pick one of the players in that field. And you're no, you have no guarantee that over long periods of time that you're going to generate uh, excess returns. Whereas if you just own the market over long periods of time, you have much, much lower fees. And the whole entire pie tends to grow over time. And that's what we're seeing right now with massive dollar outflows from hedge funds. They're the greatest this month uh, since they've been since 2009 uh, because they're not keeping pace with the market. And the reason is because you're you're dealing with a, as as fees go up and more people enter the field, they're competing for the same alpha, they're trading amongst themselves and things of that sort. If you look at things like venture capital and private equity, uh, generally speaking, there's an old saying by Groucho Marx, uh, that you don't want to be a member of any club uh, that will have you as a member. And there, they, nowhere does that apply more than in strange private equity investments. If, if it's very, very hard uh, for someone uh, to get that private equity investment, it tends to do better. So the venture capitalists take all their investments and they take the ones that they think are going to make the most money and they invest wholly in those the ones that they think aren't going to be as profitable they give to other people conceivably uh, to invest with. So generally speaking over long periods of time avoiding alternative investments is actually not a horrible idea or using them sparingly in an investment allocation. You will make better rates of return over time through a plain vanilla equity and debt portfolio than you will by buying the private equity fund that's being distributed through the large brokerage firm across the street. Almost, okay. almost all, almost always. Very good. We
1: only have a couple more minutes left. Let's okay. see if we can get to these last two points, uh, rather quickly. Number nine, focusing more on returns than on managing risk. You say that's a, that's one of the pitfalls to avoid. In yeah,
2: investing. They're one in the same. You can't generate returns with managing risk over long periods of time, especially in the equity markets, the expected rate of return is in your favor so what you have to do is manage the risk you can take in the portfolio and let the expected return just compound itself over long periods of time. Okay. If you're trying to knock the cover off the ball every period of time and you're afraid of losing money every period, you will never be a good investor. You'll never make very uh, good growth in your wealth or you'll never grow your wealth uh, dramatically over long periods of time. All right. And so number 10 of the
1: 10 investing pitfalls to avoid, not seeking professional
2: advice. Again... If you have the psychological makeup that you can invest, and when things look like they're they're going to hell in a handbasket, stay invested and not make any changes in your portfolio. You're doing what most ad, uh, advisors will do for their client, or the greatest value the advisor can provide the client. Most people psychologically do not have that ability, and that ability is worth a tremendous amount of money in terms of long-term growth of the assets. The okay. way you make money in the equity markets is you invest. And when things look like they're going to collapse, you do absolutely nothing. You stay invested and you maintain your investment. You might even add to your investment. That is so contrary to the psychological uh, underpinnings of behavior. It is very, very hard for someone to do in isolation. You're talking about in March of 2009, when the market is hitting 667, the S&P 500, which is now at 2180. Uh, that someone says, OK, I'm not going to reduce my exposure. The market has just fallen 40 to 50% from the highs. And I see people on TV panicking about the collapse of the US financial systems and claiming it's the worst time since the Great Depression. And you, the correct course of action was to buy more stocks at that point in time. It turned out. That's right. And, and that's, that is the history of the US equity markets. It's the triumph of the optimists, and it requires belief in the growth of the U.S. economy over time uh, to effectively accomplish that. So by not having that financial advisor, by doing it yourself, you get shaken out of the market at the market loads, because that's when the psychological pressure is the highest. And that is one of the greatest ways. The other way that the advisor helps dramatically is making sure your risk exposure is consistent with what you can truly bear. Very good. Mitch Sachs, it's been a pleasure to talk to you here on The Steady Investor.
1: Uh, thanks for listening to Voice America's Business Channel. I'm Mark Vickery with Mitch Zacks, the Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zacks Investment Management. Uh, we'll speak to you soon. Thanks for staying, uh, for being in touch.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week. Be sure to join Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery for another edition of The Steady Investor next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time. 12 noon Eastern time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you haven't started your retirement plan yet, what are you waiting for?